Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Steve. Cranking on through our series in Judges. Today we're into Judges chapter 9. This is the story of Abimelech. Lots of treachery, lots of killing, lots and lots of ego. Can't wait to get into it. Plenty of time for that, though. Two things I'd like to do first. No, actually, scratch that. Three things. Uh, first, thank you, thank you, thank you for downloading this podcast. And I say thank you three times because there's only three listeners. But hey, three listeners is better than none. No, actually, uh, if the internet isn't lying to me, I've got quite a bit more than three listeners these days. I think we're actually in double digits now. So hopefully you're looking forward to this little nugget showing up in your iTunes or wherever you're downloading this from. So genuinely, really, thank you. Okay, second thing. Over this past weekend, uh, I was tweaking the website, putting some new features up. One thing that I'm really excited about is the addition of a brand new blog, which I've resolved to update on a regular basis. Uh, this wasn't a New Year's resolution so much as a October-ish resolution to get a new blog up and running and, and to, by God, give, write some crap down and keep writing it down and maybe inspire a few people along the way to get off the theological and intellectual couch and start living an intelligent Christian life. So, we've gotten to know each other over the past few months, right? Um, will you do something for me? Go to the website. The website is sdgriffin.com, the letter S, the letter D, Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N dot com, and explore around for a couple of minutes. Uh, go to the blog. You'll find the link right on the homepage of the of the website. Uh, there's only one post there as of today, so don't get too excited. But hopefully you'll bookmark this thing, check back from time to time, and uh, okay, thus ends the shameless self-promotion portion of today's podcast. Okay, third thing. Let's very quickly recap what we've covered in the first eight chapters of Judges. And by quickly, I'm talking light speed. Uh, We learned at the beginning of Judges that Joshua has died, and that Israel, which is more than anything at this stage, um, a loose collection of tribes, as opposed to a legitimate nation or nation-state, the way we would think about it, is without stable leadership. What we see arise are a collection of regional judges, or shofatim, While these judges are relatively faithful to the Israelite God, Yahweh, through the first few chapters of Judges, before long, we notice these judges disregarding the covenant which Israel is meant to be living under. They begin to pursue personal vendettas, grab power for themselves, and to oppress and murder some of the same people they are meant to be helping. They kill their brothers and sisters from other tribes. Our last podcast, which spanned three chapters within the book of Judges, uh, dwelt primarily on the character of Gideon, who thought, who though he, he himself denied it, essentially claimed the powers and the identity of a king, expressly against the commands of Yahweh. And now on to chapter 9, which focuses on Abimelech, one of the many, many sons of Gideon, whom we were introduced to briefly in chapter 8. Recall that Abimelech, as we mentioned last time translates as, quote, my father is king, unquote, a name which Gideon himself gave this child. Now, we have some reason to believe that the story of Abimelech was known in antiquity and, in fact, would have been well known even in King David's day. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 11, when King David has sent his general Joab to place Uriah the Hittite at the front lines of battle so that David uh, could marry Bathsheba, The humiliating death of Abimelech is mentioned in this passage, uh, verse 21, 
which we'll recap recap here uh, shortly. But there are other equally compelling aspects of the text which lend an ancientness behind its words. While most of these details are beyond the scope of our brief time together today, suffice it to say, the city of Shechem and the events described within Shechem in chapter 9 seem to be describing a much more Canaanite way of life than an Israelite one. We've already seen this with Gideon, where his family and their community have given themselves over to worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, and we see now in Shechem that Baal and variations of Baal are being worshipped. We have no mention whatsoever in this chapter of Yahweh or of the covenant with Israel. This part of Israel has been thoroughly Canaanized, given over to syncretism and to living in the Canaanite ways. And in that sense, chapter 9 of Judges may be giving us some tantalizing glimpses into what a Canaanite city might have looked like, how one might have been governed uh, prior to the reign of Saul and David. To quickly summarize the action, okay, Abimelech gathers together his mother's relatives and makes the case that Gideon, who, remember, was also called Jerubbabel, has 70 sons who potentially could rule over Shechem. And wouldn't it be better, Abimelech happens to suggest, um, if there were merely one ruler over Shechem instead of 70? Well, these relatives agree. Obviously, it's in their interest to have a direct relation in power instead of sons of Gideon, presumably by other mothers. And they pitch the idea to the lords, the elders of Shechem. It's worth noting at this point that in the Hebrew, these elders of Shechem are called the Baal Edel, and that they then proceed to give Abimelech 70 shekels from the house of Baal Barith, translated into English as Blessed Baal. Notice how many times already the word Baal or Baal has been used to refer to the elders, the treasury, and of course the reference to Gideon being the one who strives with Baal. And by doing this, the writer is planting firmly in our minds that Shechem was completely or wholly given over to the worship of Baal. Again, it bears repeating in our discussion about possibly there being an agenda behind the writing of Judges. In other words, the author or the writer of Judges having a particular agenda which they wish to enforce upon the reader. Uh, One of which being potentially a statement against the north of Israel. The writer presumably being from the south of Israel and uh, possibly from the area of Jerusalem and writing during the period of the kingships. uh, The monarchy. This isn't for certain, but many scholars have argued exactly this, that Shechem is being described this way as a center of Canaanite-centric worship to establish its uh, evil character. Okay, so with his 70 shekels then, Abimelech hires some henchmen. The Hebrew is uncertain here. Some versions call these men uh, men without principles, though uh, brash, uh, brash men probably fits the bill pretty well. If we want to translate it that way. And so what do Abimelech and his brash men, his brash mob, do? They go to Ophrah, where his brothers live, and he kills them. All 70 of them. The text specifically mentions that they are killed upon the same stone. Which means, of course, that these brothers were killed one at a time. Presumably while the others watched. These are more executions than anything. 
born out of pure ambition for power. This is the way the kings in the ancient world would deal with siblings or threats to the throne. By taking this action, sanctioned by the elders of Shechem, there can be no doubt of Abimelech's royal aspirations. So all the brothers are killed, or seemingly so. Rather, one brother, Jotham, escapes. He makes his way to the top of Mount Gerizim, which is a mountain that stands 1140 feet above the walls of the city of Shechem. Um, today, you can go to the city of Nablus in northern Israel and stand up on top of Mount Gerizim. There's a small sanctuary up there at the top. And um, it's about 1140 feet above the ancient site. Jotham challenges the people of the city from the top of the mountain. And he challenges them with a fable, which denounces their choice of Abimelech as their leader. Just a quick word about this fable. Uh, We don't have time to dissect it, which is unfortunate. But this is different from a parable. Fables are, are, are slightly different from parables. Fables are are exceedingly rare in the scriptures. Remember, a a fable uses animals or or plants as characters. uses these characters to express a moral principle. If you've ever read anything by Aesop, uh, Aesop had a series of fables where he did this. Um, There's been a a fair amount of speculation about this fable which uh, Jotham calls out from the mountain. It may have actually been very similar to other Canaanite myths of the time period. And this would be one which Abimelech has co-opted and modified to suit his own purposes. This is very similar to what Jesus will do over a thousand years later when he adopts well-known parables of the Pharisees to suit his own teaching purposes, um, using something familiar to make a new point. Uh, You even see Don Draper doing this in Mad Men. Uh, reframing something familiar, and then twisting it to get a reaction. Though, of course, now I'm comparing Jesus with Don Draper, and we probably should just move on. Okay, from here, the plot contorts and moves very quickly. God sends a, quote, evil spirit between Abimelech and the elders of Shechem. Um, Though God here is the generic Elohim, which can actually refer to any god, rather than the proper name of Yahweh being used. Again, Yahweh doesn't appear in this chapter at all. A man named Gal, who is the son of a slave, and therefore would, have, would be of particularly low social status in the ancient world, but he somehow allies himself with the elders of Shechem and makes a deal to depose Abimelech. Through a, a series of treacheries, and I'll have to leave it to you to read this uh, for yourself in more detail, Abimelech rushes into Shechem and forces Gal out. And it's at this point, Abimelech and his companies of soldiers begin wholesale slaughter of the people people of Shechem. We have no idea how many people are being killed at this point. Uh, We do know next that around a thousand men and women in the tower attempt an escape through a secret tunnel. The tunnel must not have been a a terribly well-kept secret unfortunately, as Abimelech and his army block the exit and set fire to the tunnel, killing everyone inside. We aren't told why, but Abimelech next turns his attention towards the nearby city of Thebes, which of course is not the Egyptian city of Thebes, 
but a much smaller Israelite settlement closer to Shechem. And this is where he will meet his disgraceful end. As he is attacking the tower within Thebes, an anonymous woman throws a millstone down onto his head, crushing his skull. It was this event which King David referred to in 2 Samuel. Abimelech calls to his aide, who comes over to him, and he issues his final command. Quote, draw your sword and kill me, lest they tell of me that a woman killed him. End quote. And we'll let that comment speak for itself. The chapter ends with a bit of editorial. That God has repaid Abimelech and his evil of killing his brothers. And God has also repaid Shechem's evil. There are no good guys here. At least not in the story as it's presented. What we see here are people thoroughly assimilated into a Canaanite culture, not the least bit concerned with the observance of the covenant. A man is blinded by visions of a kingship, and he ends up doing little more than terrorizing a small city for a few brief years. What this story gets me thinking about concerns the nature of ambition. It seems to me that ambition is not in and of itself a negative, but that it has to be checked. It has to have accountability, checks and balances, to protect the individual and those he or she influences from abuses of that power. From the story, we're left to assume that Abimelech's motives weren't towards anyone's benefit but his own. But he didn't do this alone. The elders of Shechem became complicit in his lust for power. They empowered it. They had their own motives, but the interests of the people of Shechem are largely ignored. Both Testaments of our Bible focus on God's alliance with the oppressed of the world, those without a voice, those lacking the power or ability to break free of those that are ignoring their welfare. How many national revolutions through history have been a reaction to despotic rule, where one man or a small collection of men ignore the welfare of the greater population while promoting their own self-interests? I think there's all kinds of parallels with current events, world events today, but also in the, in the private sector, in the private world. I mean, how many corporations, how many places that you may have worked in your life, to, to just get this personal now, how many places that you've worked have had a situation where there was someone in charge or maybe a group of people in charge in management who were not, um, who were not appropriately considering the interests of the employees of that company, of your own interests, and were putting their own selfish interests above those of the company, the, the people who worked there, when, when they, it just didn't need to happen. The company could still be profitable, the work could still get done, and yet these folks in a position of power um, could be treating the employees in a more respectful way. So I'll leave that to you to think about and to reflect on. But What Chapter 9 has given us is a cautionary tale. But also, I believe, a, a, a genuine historical account of how an entire community was destroyed because of one man's ambition and the failure of the elders to protect their community from that ambition. Well, the misbehavior continues next time. Uh, we'll cover chapters 10 through 12 with the stories of Jephthah and the minor judges. So until then, 